Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I bet, I have no basis for really saying this, but I bet a certain percentage of the baby boomer population thinks that that's where the term rabbit hole comes from. Like, a lot of people <laughs> really said, oh yeah, it's a Jefferson Airplane song, right? Yeah. I was listening to that one time and I took LSD and I was falling and falling. No, it's actually based on the Lewis Carroll, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. That's that's the text that they were working off of. But we're going to get to that in just a second. Right now, we're just going to just talk for a second about this term. It's used more and more. I was just looking at my Apple podcast feeds. There are like eight podcasts called Rabbit Hole or Down the Rabbit Hole or True Crime Rabbit Hole or or I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's now a term so ubiquitous it may actually begin to leach out its actual meanings. But we sort of know what it was linguistically, say, over the last 15 to 20 years. It was that idea of chasing an idea. There was, it was that sense that uh, you, you had something you wanted to know or were trying to understand or you'd glimpsed a little piece of. Uh, and, and now you needed to know more. And, of course, sitting there waiting for you was the cavernous mouth of the Internet. Uh, waiting for you to step in there and keep clicking and never come back. And in fact, our friend Sabrina Herrera, who's upstairs right now, I think, uh, has been, uh, I think, kind of immersed in, in one of those searches today. Um, Kat, let's see how Sabrina's doing right now. This is Sabrina 1. Ever since I saw the Bantries of Inna Sharon, I've been thinking, maybe I'd like to have a miniature donkey. But is that even legal where I live? Let me search for donkeys, Greenwich, zoning. Mm, oh, Here's a 43-page PDF about guidance for municipalities about livestock. Uh, let's see. Donkeys, donkeys, donkeys. Look at this. Chickens, turkeys, ostriches, emus, rayas, cassowaries, waterfowl, and game birds. What's a cassowary? Whoa, it's a flightless bird that can be six feet tall. Oh, and they're beautiful. Could I have a dwarf cassowary and a miniature donkey? I wonder how much they cost. All right, we're going to check in with Sabrina throughout the day, uh, see how she's doing. <laughs> uh, but right now, we want to talk a little bit about, yes, the source material for the notion uh, of a rabbit hole. And here to help us do that is Francisca Colt, uh, a researcher in science communication and the history of science and literature. She is currently the Leverhulme Research Fellow at the University of Leeds and inaugural, uh, Car- I should have practiced all this beforehand, an inaugural Carolian Fellow at the University of Southern California. Um, so, Francisca, uh, welcome to our show. 
Hi. And great music to start with. Well, how could you how could you not play it, right? So, um, so Lewis Carroll, Charles Charles Dodson, whatever we're going to call him, um, he uh, he writes this, you know, sort of generally acknowledged masterpiece. Um, he's pretty modest about it. He says the heroine spends an hour underground and meets various birds, beasts, etc. No fairies, endowed with speech. The whole thing is a dream, but I. But that I don't want revealed until the end. He's almost kind of underselling <laughs> this thing a little bit. But it does begin with that notion of following a rabbit and falling underground. So what sorts of tripwires is he kicking by using that particular set of images? Well, I think the first thing to remember about Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and we, we love discussing this as this huge masterpiece, it doesn't actually start off as a written down story. It starts off as a story told to three little girls on a rowing trip. And that's where it helps to know a little bit about the place in which the story was first told. And that's the city of Oxford in England. And Generally, when you come there and you will retrace the steps of where the story was first told, you'll walk along the same river on which they were rowing. And the first thing that you'll spot is that the path is surrounded by rabbit holes. So you've got to imagine that Lewis Carroll is on that boat with three little girls begging him to tell a story. And he's sort of extemporizing the story and he's looking out for cues, little things that might give him something to go on while he's telling the story. And there they are, all of these rabbit holes. So that's that's one part of the story. Of course, the second part of the story is a whole literary history of people going underground and exploring amazing things down there. So when Alice goes underground, she follows the footsteps of um, the heroes of mythology and all sorts of people who have gone before her. And it's actually really interesting because Carol mocks so many elements of other literary stories that have come before the going underground that Alice goes underground and then crosses a river made of tears. It's exactly how Greek heroes in mythology would have gone underground and crossed the river that was often made of tears. And, you know, he mocks all, and of course, then Alice meets a poppy like Cerberus. You know, there's a there's a lot there. So Carol is setting off our expectations of this little girl tumbling down the rabbit hole and obviously going to go on a pretty extraordinary journey. Right. So Orpheus, Gilgamesh, you know, ancient heroes like that, they're typically when they go underground, they're going to the world of the dead, some version of the world of the dead. That's not really what's happening here. But well, that's half the story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Freud said sometimes a rabbit hole is just a hole where rabbits live, but sometimes it's not. Right. And it's pretty clear here that. Charles Dodson, Lewis Carroll is alive and quite interested at kind of the dawn of modern psychiatric thinking. We're starting to think about the unconscious. We're starting to think about the subconscious. And right. to me, that's, and I think to you as well, that's really what this whole is and where it's going. Yeah, it's great. And so what, what, what you already hinted at is that the story is a dream. So, you know, just taking a little sidetrack to Greek mythology, the underground realm is not just the realm of death. It's also the realm guarded by the two brothers, Thanatos and Hypnos, death 
and his brother sleep. And of course, Alice is falling asleep. She's having a dream. And we travel into her own mind. And what's really interesting, of course, is that this is a child's view of the world. She goes underground, but also she's literally subversive. She subverts all of the appearances, all of the surfaces of things that we see when we're awake. And what she does is she penetrates below them. She shows us what's really there. And of course, all of the adults that are normally all serious and um, stern and teaching her things look absolutely ludicrous in the story. So we're all seeing this through the innocent eyes of a child. And when she goes down there, at first, she's really quite intimidated and everything's quite scary. Like, I mean, what, how would you feel with all of these crazy creatures talking to you? But the more she travels on, the more confident she actually gets. And um, this is, I think, what makes this such an interesting and attractive story that this girl goes down there and absolutely owns it at first she's quite she's quite scared but then she goes on and at the end dismisses even the ruling court of wonderland as nothing but a pack of cards so she goes on a pretty amazing journey exploring and uncovering all sorts of hidden things seeing their real face and at the end gaining the confidence to actually dismiss all of that it's yeah i think that's what one of the bits that makes it such an attractive story and as you've pointed out and i think this is really fascinating and and, and very very true so europe at the time and probably most especially england at the time uh, there's a kind of swirl uh, of different um enthusiasms and interests and the membranes that separate literature from science from yeah. behavioral science uh, from fantasy, from the occult or parapsychological, those membranes are pretty porous. And, and so people like Lewis Carroll, like Charles Dickens, I would really throw in there Conan Doyle, who on the one hand creates Sherlock Holmes as just the, the peerless man of science, of forensic science. But Conan Doyle was like interested in all kinds of, you know, photographing fairies kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. So so that's the world that Carol's in, right? He's in this world. Absolutely. But yeah, you take, you take the baton and run with it. Oh, yeah. No, so he, so Lewis Carroll is actually a really, really great example of this time and how everything was sort of fluid and porous. And it, I love this word. Um, Carroll was really, really interested in the sciences. So we like to think of him as someone who is um, a fairy tale writer who wrote that children's book and so on. But of course, when we look sort of beyond the name Lewis Carroll into the man Charles Dodson, who was a tutor in mathematics at the University of Oxford. And one of the great documents we still have is a, a document that recorded all of the books in his life library that he owned in his lifetime, we see like thousands, literally um, around 4,000 books, uh, of which a substantial number are on the sciences and of which a substantial number among those were on early psychology. So Carol was really, really interested and he starts writing in his diaries about dreams and what they really are and what they really do with our minds. So he was reflecting on that throughout his life. He wrote um, stories and um, poetry um, throughout his life that reflected um, even on the more sort of spiritual ends of this. He was, of course, incredibly religious, but that didn't stop him from going to seances and seeing what's really going on there. So he was really interested in sort of fathoming all corners of what was going on there. So this is an age in which um, science has made all sorts of things possible. Microscopes let us see into drops of water and hidden worlds in there. And when you read the first accounts of Lewis Carroll practicing 
microscopy, you see how already how his mind is set in motion, how you can see things and find hidden worlds there that might give us hidden meanings and hidden laws. Telescopes were doing the same thing for the skies. And of course, Carol was also a photographer and photography at the time people were hoping could do the same thing to the mind. And he wrote poetry and this great poem, Hiawatha's Photographing and ph Photography Extraordinary, a short story uh, where he imagines what photography could do if it really could expose to us in an analogous manner, the mind. And that's in a way, I think what his stories were really doing. They were imitating the sort of seeing through things and seeing what, imagining what we might find there. And I think Alice in Wonderland is sort of the first trip down that particular rabbit hole, exploring where that might lead to. Right. And and very much in the mix that you just so beautifully described is that notion, the, the burgeoning notion of psychology and psychiatry, such things are dream, as dreams are made of. Uh, well, uh, there's a different kind of interrogation of that question than we got in Shakespeare's time. What are dreams made of? What What is the subconscious? What is the unconscious? What are things that are parts of our minds that we are not completely and wholly aware of? That starts to be, a, I think, a pretty exciting notion and, and certainly one that informs uh, Lewis Carroll and his rabbit hole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he, as I said, he explores this notion um, all throughout his life. Um, when we get beyond Alice in Wonderland, it becomes clearer and clearer. Of course, we get the first story, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Then we get through the looking glass. And I, I love how both the phrases going down the rabbit hole and something being through the looking glass have now completely seeped in our everyday <laughs> language use and have become have sort of taken on their own meanings, but still do kind of what the books originally did. But if you're really into Lewis Carroll, or you're starting to get really into Lewis Carroll, you could um, read on. Um, he wrote Phantasmagoria, poem about a ghost visiting this world. And his later latest novels that he wrote, his final two novels, where Sylvie and Bruno and Sylvie and Bruno concluded, in which um, the protagonist sort of keeps falling in and out of consciousness and explores the areas between consciousness. And reflects on all sorts of theories of what might be going on in these realms beyond consciousness. Carol started reading books on esoteric Buddhism and things like that. So um, this is really, really fascinating. And of course, you know, there's a whole lot of history of histories beyond the story that we know. And I think this is why it keeps being perpetually fascinating to us, keeps drawing us back to it, because this notion of seeing inside our own minds, making visible what's really there, is an incredibly enticing um, story to tell. Right. Watching uh, the video of you talking about this, I also wound up thinking of a, a book that came out within the last few years by the naturalist Robert McFarlane. It's called Underland, and, and he just explores all of these different uh, places under the ground uh, that are, you know, tombs and catacombs and, and burrows. And, uh, and he writes, why go low? It is a counterintuitive action running against the grain of sense and the gradient of the spirit. Uh, he, he notes the way that humans have long placed in the deep earth that which we fear and wish to lose and that which we love and wish to save. And, but I think also in, in Dodgson's time, you know, where can exploration take place? We're really not going up into the sky quite yet. Uh, when we go up into the sky, there'll be a way in which Alice in Wonderland will, 
you know, be kind of a, a, a downward mirror, a lower down mirror uh, of what we do there. And then, you know, fast forward 80 years or so, and the Jefferson Airplane and everybody else is taking psychedelics. That's a different kind of exploration, a different kind of trip. Um, and, and so what do we get? We get, if you go chasing rabbits, uh, and from there, what's the next trip? Well, it's probably the, the kind of digital simulated reality of the matrix. It does seem seem like these kinds of explorations, there's always kind of a new frontier, and there's a way in which Alice and her rabbit hole kind of inform all of those explorations. Yeah, and Alice, I think, is particularly great at that because we know the story, or we think we know the story, and we follow Alice on all sorts of journeys. Um, right after Alice in Wonderland came out, the story was a bestseller. Um, people loved imitating it. And um, since then, as you rightly point out, Alice has taken us down uh, the Matrix. Um, Alice has taken us down all sorts of crazy and unexpected territories. But we also know that when we follow her, she'll ask all the hard questions. She'll do that for us and she'll lead us through the territory and back home safe. So again, it's a it's a really um, amazing story type to imitate and to do things with. And we've had all sorts of adaptations of Alice in Wonderland. We've had Alice in Quantum Land. We've had Alice and Climate Change Land stories. But we've also all had Alice in uh, political caricature a lot. Its original illustrator, John Tenniel, was a caricaturist, a political caricaturist. So Alice has a whole tradition in there. Um, around the time of Brexit here in the UK. We had Alice going down Brexit holes um, daily in newspaper columns. Um, it was quite funny because in a way you say these are stories that take us into completely different territories, into quantum physics, into um, the matrix. They might seem like very different stories and going below where things are hidden, things that we might not want to see. That is, of course, something that works analogously and as a metaphor for our own mind. We might be hiding things there that we don't want other people, don't, don't want other people to know about. And of course, that's what the mythological hell in the Greek mythological tales is about. This is where the sins of mankind stew forever in grotesque embodiments. And and perhaps those inhabit our own minds. So in a way, this is a story you can play with. This is an archetype that you can play with, that you can apply to all sorts of mysteries where things might be lurking below the surface that might be a lot uglier, but perhaps might even have stories about the reality of what is hiding below the surface to tell us. Well, Francisca uh, Colt, you are our kind of guest. Let's do this again sometime. Send uh, Lily Tyson a list yeah, of your great. other topics. Uh, researcher in science communication and the history of science and literature, currently the Leverhulme Research Fellow at the University of Leeds. We're going to take a little break right now. We're going to go down more contemporary rabbit holes and see what we find besides rabbits. I lose the time I save. My fuzzy ears and whiskers took me too much time to shave. I run and then I hop, hop, hop. I wish that I could fly. This danger if I dare to stop. And here's the reason why you see I'm overdue. I'm in a rabbit stew. Can't even say goodbye. Hello, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we're back. We're talking about rabbit holes. Uh, and in fact, we uh, earlier uh, left uh, our friend Sabrina Herrera upstairs. Uh, she was doing research in donkeys and large flightless birds. Uh, and she seemed to be going down kind of a rabbit hole. Kat, let's check in on what Sabrina's doing now. Sabrina, too. Okay, forget about cassowaries. I'm a little freaked out by their powerful claws. Back to miniature donkeys, though. Check this out. In 1929, Robert Green of New York imported seven donkeys of the small indigenous Sardinian breed to the United States. Green was a lifelong advocate and said of them, miniature donkeys possess the affectionate nature of a Newfoundland, the resignation of a cow, the durability of a mule, the courage of a tiger, and an intellectual capability only slightly inferior to man's. Wow, nobody's ever said anything that nice about me. What if my miniature donkey looks down on me? You know, she's starting to sound a little bit more hypercaffeinated as she goes here. Well, at this point, Sabrina has actually ventured into the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes, the rabbit hole that leads to other rabbit holes, and that's Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia is an amazing place. Uh, Nobody really knows everything that's in Wikipedia. That's the very nature of the place. Uh, But if anybody ever did, it might very well be Annie Rauerda, a writer, comedian, and Wikipedia influencer who created Depths of Wikipedia, uh, which is in particular a very influential uh, or at least much beloved uh, Instagram account. She was named Wikimedian of the Year in the media category for 2022. I don't know what that entitles you to, uh, but I'd be interested to know know what it entitles you. And she is currently working on a book about Wikipedia. Uh, Annie, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So basically what I get for being the media wiki median of the year is a trip to Wikimania. (laughs) I'm afraid to ask, although I should know this because years ago I I teach um, at colleges uh, at times and I was teaching at Trinity College in Hartford and I kept saying to the, the department I was working in, I want to teach an entire seminar on Wikipedia. And everybody would kind of just kind of look away from me. And I'd say, no, 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 no. It, it is probably the most influential source of knowledge in, in America, if not in the world. And nobody understands what's in it. There's no, it's like an encyclopedia with no real index or anything. Uh, and so what you've done in particular is to say, well, what the hell really is <laughs> in there? Do you want to mention one or two of your favorite uh, discoveries as you've gone down Wikipedia rabbit holes? Oh, absolutely. I I do. I like to post um, odd or unusual articles. There are 6.6 million articles in English alone, so there's a lot to sift through. Um, Yesterday, I read about Nix versus Hedden, which is a Supreme Court case that happened 130 years ago um, from yesterday. And the Supreme Court ruled that tomatoes should be classified as a fruit. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, they are. I mean, I think people, I didn't know it was a, a matter of law. Oh, excuse me. I misspoke. They should be classified as a vegetable. Oh, I'm no, because I thought they were. I th- are, they are a fruit, right? We're, we're in a rabbit hole right now. We're, we're going to have to spend a lot of time online figuring out exactly how this comes out. Um, and, and that must be a somewhat vertiginous feeling for you, too, right? I mean, because nobody, particularly not somebody like you, you're not going to stay on one Wikipedia page, right? You're going to start clicking on hot links and see where they go. You can go from people who have lived in airports to the article on, I don't know, perpetual students, people who have just stayed in college forever. <laughs> um, you can click around and read about the 2004 Dave Matthews Band incident where the Dave Matthews Band dumped its uh, tour bus's septic tank over the um, a bridge in Chicago and it was going to go in the river, which is already bad, but even worse, it landed on a sightseeing tour boat. <laughs> oh well, we actually I, where I live, we've had our own Dave, Dave Matthews bands incidents. They could be just sowers of chaos uh, in a way that we <laughs> we had never completely understood. I mean, in a way, you've sort of harnessed what is normally kind of a terrifying downdraft for most of us. In other words, if I go on Wikipedia, which I I do with some regularity, or if I'm just trying to check something out, you know, but I'm also a little bit interested. I'm easily distracted. Uh, I could find out other things that would uh, interest me as well. And and there is that sense, I think Catherine Schultz in, in her article uh, talk in The New Yorker talks about that sense that it's one click or one more click. I click on one more thing and then I'm going to stop. But I think that's a little bit of the phenomenon, right? There is no real obvious ending place. There's not a finish line that you cross when you're doing these things. Exactly. And that's why it's so addicting. I I was reading recently about the history of information retrieval. And for basically as long as, as there have been encyclopedias and even libraries, there's been a lot of discussion on how do we even organize all of this? Um, the first libraries um, like the Library of Alexandria and the first encyclopedias like Natural History written by uh, the goofy goofy Roman statesman named Pliny the Elder, those were organized by category. Um, Pliny wrote a whole chapter of his massive encyclopedia about like medical cures, a lot of which were uh, not really based in the science that we now know to be true. Um, and then eventually, when dictionaries got more popular, Encyclopedia Britannica ditched its previous model of doing both thematic and alphabetical organization, and it did almost it like like pretty consistent alphabetical organization. Um, and then you get like the Dewey Decimal System, which that lived on, and it still lives on, and that's thematic. And so um, with those sorts of things, yes, you can totally have rabbit holes, but you have to be a little bit more deliberate about it. You have to, you know, turn the page and to know where you're going. Whereas when you have the internet and Wikipedia, um, there is no alphabetical. There isn't really even that the, the same sort of thematic organization. You're just clicking around. Um, it's all in data structures, which lends itself to rabbit holes really well. Um, when you're reading about, say, I don't know, anti-Barney humor, the whole class of jokes <laughs> that is really common among like first graders where you make fun of Barney. And maybe you're reading about Barney and you're like, well, what's the whole deal with this purple dinosaur? And you can just click on the article 
and read it right away. And then maybe you're like, well, what's the whole deal with dinosaurs? And then you can read about dinosaurs. <laughs> I was uh, at Betty Ford with Barney, and I happened to know that those jokes really hurt him. He brought it up at group a lot. Uh, so it, it's a sore spot for Barney. Um, all right. <laughs> so um, oh, I have to tell you this story. I wasn't going to tell you this story, but it, I have to. Um, so I was teaching this one course at Trinity, and it had to do with the flow of information and the world of the internet. And, uh, and I had discovered a blog by sort of a Wikipedia apostate. It was a guy who had been, I don't know what they're called. They're called administrators or whatever. But one of the, but he was like high up in the volunteer priesthood uh, of Wikipedia curation. And then he just decided it was all crap. Uh, and he got really mad. And he started his own blog to kind of attack Wikipedia. And he started. And, and so we were reading his blog and my students were blogging their homework. And he somehow or other discovered it. And he, then he tracked my phone number down, and I'm just walking across campus. He says, do you teach a class at Trinity? And I said, yes. And he goes, where is it? When does it meet? And the next thing I know, he'd shown up at the class uh, with, like, a camera and a tape recorder. And he was a very odd person. He actually wound up being very interesting to talk to. But, Andy, what it made me realize is not only do we not know how deep the depths of Wikipedia go, we don't really know exactly who's digging those holes either. It's not like you can look up somewhere the names of all the people who are writing about Barney jokes or, you know, uh, or, or a, a, muse, a stone in a museum in Taiwan that uncannily resembles a slab of meat. We don't really know where all this stuff comes from. Right. Well, first of all, I heard your description and I was like, oh, I think I know that guy. And then I thought more and I was like, actually, I know a few people that fit that description. Um, Wikipedia has a way of drawing out very, very passionate and often kooky personalities. Um, but like you said, um, it doesn't require personal information from contributors. You can make edits to an article. You can create your own article just from an IP address without even having a username if you want. As long as you follow the style guide, as long as you follow, follow the rules, which are um, pretty strict, um, you can do it. Most yeah. people do have accounts. They have usernames, but mm. you're actually actively discouraged from making a username that resembles or is your own name. And so a lot of contributors will be like having these really deep discussions on how to represent things on Wikipedia. And their name is like, I don't know, green turd one, two, three or something, um, which is rather funny, especially when the discussions have to do with like, I don't know, the future of knowledge access and how do we represent this really topical, I don't know, like sometimes it's like talking about how to classify battles and things that have political implications. Um, also, so so when you talk about the the unexplored depths of Wikipedia, I will say it's not like it's not like the bottom of the ocean where we truly don't know what's going on there. Like Wikipedia does keep a record of all of its edits. You can look at yes. the history of articles. I really like going to the first version of really popular articles, like like Obama's first um, the the first article about Barack Obama is very short, and it just says, "Hey, this is an Illinois state senator." Um, which is kind of funny now, knowing that he was uh, the president for eight years. So, yeah, Wikipedia is massive. There's 6.6 million articles in English, but there are more than 300 languages that have Wikipedias, which is more languages than there are on Google Translate even. 
Right. One of the things I always say is you probably, I mean, I think Wikipedia is amazing. I think it's essentially a utopian experiment that by and large works. You know, I mean, it, it really, because in fact, there's kind of the crowdsourcing and, and the, um, the editing of material and the, the constant revision based on either new information or mistakes people feel that they have found. Although I think we both know there's sort of a power law here. I, I, you know, a large percentage of the work is done by a small percentage of workers. Uh, but but it's still, I think it's a really good um, information experiment. I don't think if I put up a, a sign next to a, a bridge spanning a big river that said this bridge was built using solely information found on Wikipedia, that people would want to drive across it. I mean, there, there's a sense in which it's it's really interesting for the kind of stuff that you're talking about. Uh, I don't necessarily want the person doing CPR on me to have found out how to do CPR on Wikipedia. Well, that's the thing. Of course not. Of course you want, um, you know, you don't want to use a tertiary source of any sort when you um, when you when you really, really, really care about the information's accuracy, because it's like the game of telephone. Um, If I am a surgeon doing surgery, I want to read about that surgery straight from the source. Um, And yeah, there have been studies like for years now about Wikipedia's accuracy. And it's often, um, you know, the butt of jokes on The Office, for example, Michael Scott jokes like anyone can write whenever, whatever they want. And so that, that's how you know you're getting the best information possible or something like that. Um, and that was back in 2006. And the sentiment is still around, you know, like Wikipedia is something that um, occasionally is a place where like fifth graders in the back of class are writing little jokes. Um but by and large, it's a great source. I mean, it's stuck around for so long. There are tons of people that are patrolling every recent change um, and checking it to make sure that it's not gobbledygook or vandalism. Um, and so, you know, for all its flaws, which there are a lot, it is pretty impressive. And I'm often astounded at how accurate it really is. Oh, absolutely. And I think it also just harnesses it's one of the things that harnesses this incredible tidal wave of information that is the internet. But I think it also is built to to do the thing that you do. It's it's built to keep you looking at things. And there's that, you know, page of the day every day that has all kinds of sort of fairly, you know, randomly curated stuff on it. But I mean, if you're a curious person, this it's not like reading an entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica and it maybe tells you one or two other you know, entries you might want to look at. There, this is, in fact, a road that winds and snakes and forks and kind of goes on forever. And it's very much a mirror of the larger internet that way, right? There's an infinite nature to all of this stuff. Well, it's incredible. There's in the see also section at the bottom is one of the best. I have a little... I have a little rabbit themed rabbit hole for you if if that's allowed. Yes, Colin. please. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Do you know the Jimmy Carter rabbit incident? I do. This is a rabbit who swam out to Jimmy Carter's boat while he was fishing and appeared, at least as far as being Jimmy Carter believed, it appeared to be menacing him. I think another big problem, if I recall, was I think he was the only person who saw this whole thing happen. So it was a story he was telling people about this rabbit so, that swam up to his boat. And he was not entirely believed or people thought it might be a bad sign. Well, yeah, he was saying I got attacked by a killer rabbit while I was fishing. And everyone was like, what in the world, Jimmy? Some of his political opponents were even like, Jimmy, you're weak. This is why the Iran hostage crisis happened, which is <laughs> kind of a stretch. Anyway, though, his press photographer eventually came out with a photo and was like, actually, look at this. And you can clearly see 
a little swimming rabbit mm-hmm. swimming away. So I've read this Wikipedia article several times. It's a great one. It's pretty interesting. But once I get to the end, um, I realize that I'm going to be on Wikipedia for much longer because the see also section lists all sorts of goofy presidential incidents that are hard not to click on. There's the Jimmy Carter UFO incident. The man saw a UFO. There's the George H.W. Bush vomiting incident. The Bill Clinton haircut controversy. Dick Cheney hunting incident. The Bush shoeing incident. And then <laughs> the Obama tan suit controversy. All sorts of things that, I mean, I sort of remember, but it's like, wait, hold on. I want to read a whole encyclopedia entry on this now. Right. I'm I'm embarrassed to say that I, I think I can pretty well place or describe almost every one of the things. Like it was in... Bush 41, he vomited in Japan. And I think he like vomited on the prime. It was at a formal dinner. He might have vomited on or very near the prime minister of Japan. But Yes. And then there's also the, the Bush shoeing incident, which everyone knows pretty well. Remind us what the shoeing incident is. That was at a press conference when um, George W. Bush um was speaking into a microphone and somebody threw a shoe at him in protest of the Iraq war. Yes. Um, Yes. And so, yes, that can keep you very busy. And I sort of wonder whether you worry at all. Like, I I mean, this has turned into a fabulous thing for you. You're working on a book. Uh, I mean, in a way, this has just kind of launched you to a certain kind of fame. Uh, But it also probably puts you in a position where you may not be as in control of your time as you want to be. I don't know. I'm just sort of wondering what it's like for you going down these rabbit holes. Well, first of all, I can't really take credit for Wikipedia. Like I edit quite a bit, but mm-hmm. this is all the work of volunteers, most of whom are anonymous. Um, I definitely like at this point, I'm kind of, you know, I'm writing this book. So if I get really sucked down the rabbit hole of like list of fictional worms or something like that, <laughs> it's not entirely a waste of time. I can sort of justify it. Um, and I also, I mean, the, the longer I'm at it, the more I'm realizing that I will never run out because um, something that's even more interesting than a cookie article is looking at, okay, what are all the debates that have gone on in a talk page um, about this article? Because sometimes the, the arguments that Wikipedia editors are having behind the scenes are like just as interesting, perhaps more interesting. Um, one that I remember is like, should the article feces contain a photo? Um, is a potato chip <laughs> flavored F-L-A-V-O-R or flavored F-L-A-V-O-U-R? And after 22,268 edits, finally, finally they reached the compromise of saying seasoned. Um <laughs> So, oh, another one was, does it violate Wikipedia's commitment to neutral point of view to call an animal cute? 21,000 edits debating Mm. this question. Um, So I think a lot of the passion speaks to how likely so many of of us are to go really, really deep down some kooky, odd rabbit holes. Right. And I, there are some things also where I, I remember when I was teaching that course, we were talking about you know things that at that time, things would go up on Wikipedia and they'd be wrong and nobody would know about it because it was such an obscure to- topic that it just wasn't visited very often. And, and one of my students said, make a mistake like that in the World of Warcraft article and see how fast that gets reversed. Uh, and, and I think that is true. There's sort of the passion you know, that, that exists in certain places. So I don't know. Do you, do you want to give us – I actually, I'm going to spend all day thinking about fiction, fictional worms. 
Um, and uh, I'm sure I have nothing to contribute that hasn't already been there. But maybe what we should do right now is to check in on Sabrina uh, and, and see how she's doing with her rabbit hole. Uh, so, Kat, yeah, let's check out Sabrina 3. It says adult miniature donkeys stand 36 inches or less at the withers. What are withers? It's right between the shoulder blades, so the head would come up higher. It also says any donkey with at least two spots behind the throat latch and above the legs can be registered with the American Council of Spotted Asses. What is that? Some kind of Tucker Carlson fan club? And what the hell is a throat latch? I'm pretty sure I've been awake for 27 hours. So, Annie, this may feel a little familiar. I think you actually have been on the Miniature Donkey article site maybe fairly recently. Have I? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. I remember I was, I was looking at the list of donkey breeds. Yes. And I was tickled to see that there's a photo of the Brazil donkey mm-hmm. in which the donkey is wearing uh, like a party hat and sunglasses. Yes. It looks like it's ready for carnival. It looks so Brazilian and it really made me happy. <laughs> well, let's let's end on a happy note then. So uh, Annie Rowardup uh, is a writer, comedian and Wikipedia influencer who created Depths of Wikipedia, best known as an Instagram account. She was named Wikimedian of the Year. Actually, I follow you on Twitter, too, uh, in the media category for 2022. And she's currently working on a book about Wikipedia. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll be back. We'll take a little break and we will be right back. All right, time to say some thank yous, starting with our technical producer, Kat Pastor, who actually edited the Donnie Wahlberg uh, (laughs) article on Wikipedia. Uh, Good to have a passion uh, like that one. Uh, Also, uh, a little special thank you to Dylan Rays, who's been sending us up wacky music for our uh, billboards before the show. Uh, He's down in Virginia right now. And special, special, special thanks to Sabrina Herrera, uh, who is the voice talent working on these uh, strange rabbit hole audios. Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this particular episode. And we're going to conclude because when uh, Lily first came to me with the idea of doing a show about rabbit holes, I said, well, presumably we'll actually do one segment about actual rabbit holes. I mean, the ones that rabbits make and dwell inside. And so she consented. And here we go with Dominic Cousins, an award-winning nature writer who's just finished his 45th book on wildlife. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Good afternoon. Uh, Good afternoon to you. And so... Uh, you know, I mean, all rabbit holes are not not alike. Some rabbits don't live in holes at all. For example, the rabbits around here, um, who are eastern cottontails, I think, uh, they don't have holes. So explain a little bit about rabbits. Why do they dig holes, and, and, and what kind of holes do they dig? Okay, so when you uh, think about rabbits, you've got to think about rabbits and hares and jackrabbits and so on. And around the world, there's about 60 different sorts of them. And um, one that's the, that's the rabbit holes are named after is the European rabbit, which is mainly confined to Europe, comes from Europe originally. And you've got these uh, major, di- um, major diversion between rabbits and hares. Rabbits live underground and they make the burrows and hares don't. And your cottontails are slightly in the middle because they don't make their own holes, but they sometimes live in them. And the idea behind the hole is for the 
the burrow is for the rabbit to be safe, essentially. Yes, that makes sense. So Lewis Carroll's rabbits would have been these European rabbits. They, I think, come from Absolutely, Spain and yes. Portugal initially, but probably dig a, dug a really long tunnel to England or something. Uh, <laughs> well, we've done that. <laughs> we've done it for them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's much easier for them to get there now, although I don't know what whether rabbits observe Brexit or not. Um, so um, could we see just a little bit more about the size of the... Well, actually, there's a term that I toss around all the time if I'm walking through one of those offices that have lots of cubicles and little partitions and uh, strange little you know, cordoned-off spaces. I say it's a real rabbit warren. But I don't think I really know what a rabbit warren is or whether it's different from just a rabbit hole. So maybe talk a little bit about the different configurations of these rabbit yeah, holes. Sure. First of all, a rabbit is, I was thinking about this earlier, it's about the size of a loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. uh, but hairs are a little bit bigger, so like a really small dog. And the rabbits that dig the holes dig them communally. So they live in things called warrens. And warrens are basically sort of under, underground passageways. And there's lots of branches and obviously every warren has a gym, it has a, a mall, it has, you know, places where they can go to the cinema and think that. Kind of <laughs> but what they do is they have places where the different rabbits can spend different amounts of time. And it actually all depends on whether you're a dominant rabbit or a subordinate rabbit. The dominant rabbits stay in the middle of the warren where it's safe and warm. And the subordinate rabbits uh, are on the outside. And the, the warren itself, I mean, some warrens are, are centuries old. And so you have, they probably do guided tours, actually, of their, of their own, of their warrens, <laughs> saying that this was here in 200 years ago. And, and um, they can be extensive, so they could go, you know, several hundred meters square in a really big one. They don't go very far down, actually, just a few, a few feet, just a couple of meters maximum. Now, the average warren is... Um, there's one dominant male and a couple of females. So the dominant male is, is promiscuous, polygynous, if you like. And um, if the, the dominant male and the dominant female, everyone's always, you know, we have a, we have a, um, a phrase about rabbits sort of being sweet, cute, actually. I can call it, I'm going to call a rabbit cute so that there's a Wikipedia yes. store. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're actually violent creatures and the, both the males and females will fight to the death over resources. They don't look like they could hurt a fly, but actually, well, they don't hurt flies because they don't eat flies. They only they eat they eat grass and American presidents, basically. Um, <laughs> You're going down anyway, a series they, of rabbit holes as you tell this story. I yeah, love I've it. I love going, it. I've been going down rabbit holes whilst I've been whilst I've been listening to your show. Actually, and I'm very worried that I might not say anything that on this on this interview that's not in Wikipedia. So I've got to come. I've got to. I've been looking in some textbooks. To, to make sure some of it can't be found in Wikipedia, what I tell you. So, so the warrens then are basically communal underground burrows, not very deep, and they are dug by the rabbits themselves. They usually dug dig during the day, and they come out at night to feed, and then they spend most of the day indoors. So, you know, just to go back to Alice and her rabbit, I mean, one of the things that the rabbit does, you know, she is following it and then the rabbit disappears uh, and she, for a moment, cannot figure out where the rabbit went. Uh, I think I'm remembering the story fairly well anyway. And that's sort of a thing, right? That's sort of a thing for burrowing animals. They have that sense that they can very, very quickly disappear. Absolutely. That's the whole idea, really, behind the burrow is that they can get away from predators. Some predators will follow them into the burrow, but even then, as you're suggesting, they'll be interconnected 
areas. So they're also they make their own uh, escape routes, their emergency exits. So if they do have a predator come into the warren, they can actually bolt away. They have these special places where they can they can run away. And so yes, and of course it's dark. It's mm -hmm. dark all the time. It's, they don't really have lights or anything like that inside their burrows. And so they can't actually see anything un under there at all. There might be something coming from outside, but obviously at night they won't. So they're basically going around by using those great big ears and their scent and things like that. Who knows? They probably sort of crash into things when they're running away <laughs> from a predator. So, um, yeah, the whole sense is that it, it's a mystery, isn't it? As right. soon as a, an animal disappears down a, a burrow, it's gone from us and it it changes from something we can see to something that we imagine. Exactly. So if you wanted to make sure that you were straying outside the bounds, the confines of Wikipedia, you could tell us a story <laughs> about you could tell us a story about chasing a wombat. Oh, absolutely, yes. This isn't oh, actually it's in my it, I did write this up once, but yeah, I, wombats, I'm sure if, this is actually really intriguing about wombats. There's two things I'll tell you about them. There, there was a man, he's a man now, he's a, a schoolboy in uh, Australia who spent his part of his school time waking up in the middle of the night when all the teachers and all his fellow pupils were asleep. In Australia, this is. And uh, he would go down wombat burrows. <laughs> he went down as far as 70 feet down a wombat, wombat burrow. Because these big animals, wombats, are like sort of giant rabbits, if you like, but they're not related at all. They're marsupials. And actually, this is at Timbertop School, which is, I've got to get this in this week. King Charles III spent two terms at Timbertops. I had to think of a way to get, because we're very proud of our, <laughs> our new king. Anyway, there are three species of wombats, and one of those, the eastern wombat, that, that's the one he studied, and there's two hairy-nosed wombats. And when I, I went to Australia about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and I was very fortunate to be involved with a, a science research project on the southern hairy-nosed wombat, and it involved catching them. And so we were, we were advised, several of us, of men in not particularly good condition, actually, especially not after our meal <laughs> and the beers. We went out in the middle of the night and um, on a utility vehicle with a, a spotlight. And as the wombats came out of their warrens, we um, tried to um, blind it, if you, know, if you like, with, with the light. And then one of us would take a great big net and run towards this wombat, which is temporarily dazed and jump at it and try and get a net over it. And what makes me really laugh thinking back on it is we had to sign a disclaimer first because these warrens are in the ground and you could easily break a leg in the middle of the night. You're running, trying to catch a wombat. You've had beer. And um, I just would love to have seen if someone had got injured, whether what the claim form would have been like and whether they would have believed us saying, I'm really sorry, my travel insurance, does my travel insurance cover injuries caused by chasing wombats in the middle of the night. Dominic Cousins, we may have to leave it on that very, very suspenseful <laughs> note. Uh, but yes, yes, if you go chasing wombats, definitely bring uh, King Charles along with you. It'll bring back memories of his boyhood. And Dominic Cousins is an award-winning nature writer who's just finished his 45th book on wildlife. Only 45 more books to go uh, before he can stop. And we are going to stop now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>